This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McCray. It's political season, and you'll hear plenty of thoughts from both sides of the aisle on the state of the economy. This week, we get a real look at where we stand and where we are headed and how it will impact agriculture. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. When it comes to using nitrogen on my corn, the more predictable, the better. That's why I've used Pivot Bio Proven 40 on my crops for the past two seasons. With Pivot Bio, I know my crops are getting the nitrogen they need, no matter the weather. And now, that same predictability is available right on the corn seed. Pivot Bio Proven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen. Our field demonstrations show an opportunity for a better ROI and a reduction of synthetic nitrogen. Turn to a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio. I hope you'll learn more. Contact your local sales rep or just go to pivotbio.com. Depending on which political ad you hear, you'll believe the country is either headed into economic oblivion or we are just experiencing an expected temporary correction after the pandemic. So which view is correct? Well, depending on the issue, either, neither, or both. Chris Keel with Armada Strategic Intelligence is this week's guest, and I appreciate the way he works to take politics out of the discussion to get the best and truest view of the current economy. We focused on the trends impacting agriculture and how we can prepare for what's ahead. Chris Keel is my guest. He is the chief economist at Armada Corporate Intelligence, and I got to hear Chris at a recent conference and really enjoyed what he had to share because certainly there are a lot of things impacting the world economy. There always are. Uh, but I think that Chris does a nice job of perhaps seeing through politics and just kind of giving us some of the facts, no matter what side of the, the aisle you may be on. Chris, why don't we start with this? You know, we have been for the last several months hearing so much about Ukraine and Russia and we'll just start out at a very high level. Give people an, an idea of how much that war is impacting not only oil, but just trade and inflation and all these different factors. We know that war is going on, but how big of an impact is it truly having on folks here in, in the U.S.? Yeah, our impact from the Ukraine war has been kind of mixed. It doesn't really hit the U.S. that directly because we don't do much with Russia. We don't do much with Ukraine, but we do a lot with Europe. Europe has been affected dramatically by that war. So a lot of the impact has been us supporting the Europeans. High diesel prices, high LNG prices, trying to support the Europeans. If it were not for the European engagement, we probably would be doing very little with Russia and Ukraine. And when they were effectively frozen out of the energy market for really the bulk of the year, prices have gone up. So we have seen oil prices getting as high as 120, 130. Now those have fallen since then. And we've seen other countries, notably the U.S. and Canada, stepping up production, hitting record numbers uh, they haven't seen in years. But the impact still rolled through the country and the world as a whole when it came to inflation. What gets overlooked a little bit is the impact on food because 25% of the world's wheat came from Russia and Ukraine, about 15% of the world's corn. 
that was interrupted almost more than the oil flow. And even though you've had some willingness on the part of the Russians to let the Ukrainians ship food out, it's still not making it to the open market. It's getting hung up in Turkey. It's not getting out of the Black Sea. It's had an impact on food prices globally, more so in other countries than the U.S., because obviously we produce most of our own. It really hasn't affected other trade. We don't do much trade with Russia. They don't buy much from us. We don't buy much from them. It definitely has had a bigger impact on Europe, and that's probably the most significant implication for us. We're trying to help the Europeans survive these sanctions by providing them diesel, LNG, anything we can to help them get through the energy crisis. So even though it didn't hit us directly, because we're trying to bail out the Europeans, it's driven up our own prices. You know, that's one thing I wanted to ask you. Certainly we see higher inflation here in this country, but what is it like in some of those European nations? I mean, we've just had the resignation of the British Prime Minister. In part, perhaps some of this plays into that. What is the impact in some of those European nations? Is inflation rising even faster and the impact there felt even stronger because of that war? Oh, very definitely. The Europeans are probably firmly in a recessionary phase. We are not yet, really. Uh, probably, depending on how you want to define it, we may be getting away with sort of a downturn, short-lived recession, uh, which would begin to ebb by next year. The Europeans are already in a recession, probably will be continuing to deal with it next year. But their inflation numbers have been, on average, <clears throat> maybe 30-40% higher than ours, particularly when it comes to energy. Uh, you've seen 300%, 400% increase in the price of natural gas. Uh, the Europeans were very dependent on Russia for gas. Not as much on oil, but certainly on gas. And as a result, you're seeing extremely high heating prices beginning to show up, and Europe is hoping against hope that they don't get a very, very cold winter. But all the indications from the weather people is that they are going to get a cold winter. This will be the fourth year in a row for La Nina, and we could go on for days about the weather situation, but it, it doesn't bode well uh, for the Europeans when it comes to fuel. So they're suffering much more dramatically from this. They're going to have to make a lot more adjustments. Our connection to Russia has always been extremely weak. We don't have, we don't sell them very much. We don't buy very much from them. We've never bought oil from them. So it's, it's a kind of one step removed impact for us. So letting this war play out for a while probably, in a sense, would work to Russia's favor then because it continues to make the hurt last longer for Europe. Would that be right? Yeah, it, to a degree. But the other problem, of course, is that Europe now has decided that Russia is no longer even remotely reliable as a partner. So they're moving forward to replace virtually everything that they ever got from Russia. They're doing a lot more development of energy resources outside Russia the Europeans had invested pretty heavily in Russia. They had done a lot of transfer of manufacturing. There was a lot of construction projects. All of those have been abandoned. And so the out, outlook for Russia is very bad. The Europeans have basically got to get through another six months, maybe nine months, and things begin to turn for them. Russia has set itself back at least 25 years. Let's talk about here at home. Certainly, we have seen higher energy prices, higher gas prices. But I believe you mentioned 
as far as U.S. production, are we at one of our highest levels as far as the the oil that we are producing here, or where do we stand, comparatively speaking? Yeah, we're hitting records. We have never produced as much oil per day as we do now. We're between 13 and 14 million barrels a day. We have traditionally been around 10 or 11. Uh, our consumption is also down just a bit. We used to consume probably around 23 or 24 million barrels a day. We're at about 20 million now. So we still have a deficit of maybe 7 to 6 million barrels per day. But most of that we get from Canada, from Mexico, um, elsewhere in, in the hemisphere. We buy a little bit from Africa. We buy a little bit from the Middle East. But even that's almost a convenience. The New Jersey refineries just find it cheaper to buy from the Middle East than try to get it from the middle of the U.S. We <coughs> were kind of up in arms when the Saudis and OPEC decided to cut production. But literally, they're cutting production by the amount that we increased. So as they began to see us producing more oil, it's like, well, with you producing more, we don't need to create a glut. Because if we end up with a glut, which they're worried about because of the potential for a recession, they look ahead and say, well, if we do get a downturn, do get a recession, consumption's going to go down. There's not going to be the need for oil. We're trying to protect that 70 to $90 a barrel price. If the U.S. is literally overproducing, well, we're going to need to compensate by underproducing. So it really isn't a political decision. It's not Saudi Arabia backing Russia. Saudi Arabia backs the price of oil. I mean, they only have one commodity. <laughs> it's like that's the only thing they have to sell. As we think about an, an ag audience, certainly we think about producing ethanol, soy, dies soy diesel, and, and soy byproducts that might be used as fuel and energy. So where are we headed? You mentioned our consumption is going down, and certainly we hear about more re renewable energy, and I know this is one of the things you spoke about. What do we see as we come through the, the following years of this next decade? How does this mix change in the U.S., and perhaps how does that change U.S. agriculture? Yeah, what you're seeing in energy as a whole is kind of an acknowledgement that we're going to depend on everything. We're going to need fossil fuel. We're going to need the alternatives. We're going to need whatever we can get our hands on, whatever makes the most sense for an area. There was a period, for example, that everyone was anticipating a reduction in fossil fuel production. So we were going to be made up with soy diesel and ethanol and all the other alternatives, more dependence on solar power and, and wind. That's still there, but now there's the recognition that we're not going to be giving up fossil anytime soon. Same thing happening around the world. The Germans were shutting down their nuclear power plants until now. And now all of a sudden they're like, oh, we really can't afford to do that. We need the power. These things are going to continue. Japan is building a nuclear power plant at Fukushima. It's like we need that power. And though we're not really thrilled about depending on nukes again, that's the, that's the reality. So if you look at the kind of spending that's being called for, it's, it's kind of all hands on deck. Uh, anything anybody can think of to produce energy. The realistic aspect of this is that we're still 75% dependent on fossil fuel. So, and will be through 2050. So it's not the end of oil, gas, and coal. But there's actually more investigation of how to do that cleaner, how to do it more efficiently. Clean coal is now the big conversation, coal gasification. So the farmer is not going to lose that market, but it's also not going to see it 
expand radically at the expense of fossil fuel? Certainly we've talked about fuel and energy, and that plays into inflation. How big a piece of the inflation we see now does that figure in? And then you may want to talk about inflation because I know one of the things you spoke about is is what's the true rate of inflation? There's so many different factors right. and pieces right. that go into that. I think that's an interesting conversation. Yeah, inflation is actually sort of hard to measure. And the two that we normally see is CPI, which is the consumer price index. And then occasionally people will notice that there's a second one, which is personal consumption expenditures. The CPI has the virtue of being current. It comes out every month, so we can track it. However, it's not necessarily that accurate because it's somewhat artificial. It's based on a mythical basket of goods that the average family of four buys. If there was an average family of four, and if you could really figure out what it is that they buy. So it's always off a little bit. PCE is an after-the-fact assessment where you're looking at what was actually spent, what the prices actually were. The problem is we just got, in early October, CPI numbers. At the same time, we got PCE for July. So we're like two or three months behind. We won't know what inflation for August or September or October until almost the end of the year. So it's a little bit of a lagging indicator. Right now, PCE is sitting at about 4.4, and that's the 10-month PCE trimmed mean. Those of you who remember your statistics classes remember that fondly, but that's the number the, the Fed looks at. That's about twice what the Fed would like to see. The Fed would prefer seeing the PCE at about 2. So if it's at 4.4, it's a little over twice as, as aggressive as they would like it to see, which is why they're pushing up interest rates. But at the same time, they understand that the kind of inflation we're dealing with doesn't lend itself too well to interest rate changes. This is a cost-push kind of inflation. It's going up because the supply chain is still broken and because energy prices are still high. And as those issues rectify, and they are starting to, you will see a little bit less pressure on the inflation side. The Fed is going to keep raising rates as long as the unemployment rate is low. They have all but stated that if the unemployment rate gets back to 4.5, they will stop raising rates. They may even start reversing them. But given the fact it's about 3.2 right now, the Fed still has quite a bit of room to maneuver. I know you gave several examples just about how tight the labor force is, and it looks like a lot of places just simply can't get the labor. So should we expect that to be reversed anytime soon? Because that that's stayed so low for so long now. Yeah, the, the labor shortage is so significant, and particularly in the ag community. I mean, there just is not the workforce. You see it with manufacturing, you see it with transportation, with construction, but also in ag. We don't train people effectively for the careers that are out there. Uh, we still have not managed to sort of convince the educational establishment that there are other jobs available other than working in a cloth-covered cube. So we have to keep pushing that issue. But there's no easy fix because the major reason we have seen such a decline in worker availability is just simply retirement, that you've lost some 20 million boomers in the last couple of years we knew it was coming. You know, we should maybe have prepared better. We knew that people were going to turn 65 the year they were born, but we did not prepare. We see 10,000 boomers reaching retirement age every day and not 
all of them retire, but enough of them do that it creates a problem. And there's no there's no real pool to pull from. You know, we don't really need the kind of immigration we've had in the past. In past years, we could take people with limited skills, limited language capabilities, and train them. But that's not who we need now. You know, we need machine operators and people with sophisticated skills. Those aren't the ones who are coming into the immigration pattern. Other than that, it's trying to convince boomers not to retire so soon. Um, maybe we can change the child labor laws. You know, it's, kind of <laughs> it's like, come on, kid, you're the only person that understands a high tech. Help dad. I know you're only nine, um, but you understand this. Dad doesn't. Yeah, no. it, it, who knows what may work. Do, do you think, you know, you mentioned the baby boomers, and certainly they got older, and, and we've known this for a while. Did COVID just make that happen all of a sudden? Is that what really happened? Really, kind of, because it's a combination of just people getting older. When the boomers were first hitting retirement, well, it's one thing to keep working into your 60s, even early 70s, but when you start hitting the mid-70s, early 80s, yeah, people really then do want to retire. And then when you add COVID to it, you had a lot of people who were saying, look, I was kind of willing to stay in the workforce, but now I'm in that high risk category and maybe I don't want to be out in the world and subjecting myself to this. So a lot of people really did opt for retirement saying earlier that they weren't going to, but then they decided to. Now we're starting to see some of those people come back and that's been the phenomenon with the boomers from the very beginning is that they try retirement <laughs> and after about two weeks they're like okay i played golf i've seen my friends i'm bored i want to go back to work right right we we began our conversation with russia and ukraine but i want to get down to china because certainly it has a big global impact but a very definite impact in agriculture because one of our major trading partners. So going forward, how do we look at uh, what's going to happen with China? Because you have an ag economy that very much wants to trade with them, but then we have other folks that say we just need to be independent of China. How does this play out going forward? Yeah, there's really a difference of opinion between the ag community and the trade community as a whole. I mean, China at one point we were sort of thinking of as half friend, half rival. Now it's more like 5% friend, 95% rival. And every day we see new restrictions on trade with China. The Chinese have just finished their 20th Party Congress, and it was a very aggressive, uh, very anti-Western kind of mood. They've been trying for years to become independent of that export market. They know they depend on it, but they don't like it, and they would rather have domestic consumption holding the bag which limits what they want to do with us. We limit what we want to do with them. But right in the middle is the ag community, and the Chinese are aware of it too. I mean, their own military just released a report maybe two months ago that said the single main reason for us not to intervene in Taiwan directly is that the U.S. might see this as an excuse to impose sanctions. If we do not bring food in from outside China, Please remember, we are only 20% independent in soybeans. 80% of what we need, we import. China is not independent when it comes to food production. And the military pointed out in this report that in the last 2,500 years, every Chinese government that has fallen has fallen over food. And if they don't get the food that they need, then they don't get it exclusively from us, but 
They get it from Canada, from us, from Brazil, from Argentina, from Australia. They need those import markets. They can probably get along without us in terms of the imports that they do, but even their general exports, most of what the Chinese produce, we buy. The rest of the country, the rest of the world is not that enthused. I mean, they do, but the bulk of what China exports is sent to the United States to be sold in Walmart and Target and those types of places. So does the situation in China change anytime soon then? Because certainly if they rely on us for that many soybeans and some other crops, not only us around the world, it takes a long time to ever change that if they ever could. And it's not clear they ever could because they're still dealing with a shortage of land. When you look at China, it looks like a huge country, but almost two-thirds of it is useless as far as agriculture. It's desert, it's mountain, it's not set up for this. They're actually quite resource poor. They import oil. They import many of the precious metals that they need. Um, some things they have independence with, but not many. So they've always been dependent on that world stage. The changes that might take place in China, you have a faction within the Chinese Communist Party that is not happy with the hostility that China has expressed towards its trading partners. Whether they have enough power to kind of overcome the current mood it remains to be seen, but you've got a very active business community that says, look, we became the second largest economy in the world by selling to the United States. We survive by buying from the United States. We really can't afford to alienate the U.S. Yes, we're rivals, but we don't need to take it to that next level. Let's talk about the ag economy here for just a moment. While input prices have gone up, agriculture's had commodity prices that have gone up, so the margin has remained all right for many farmers, but that can always turn. Do you see that turning? And perhaps some of that's just out of our hands. It's weather, it's drought, these types of things, but this is on the mind of a lot of farmers. Yeah, the farmer is always subject to the whims of nature, and we're certainly hoping that things continue to pan out because at the moment, those high impact or high input costs are being covered by the ability to make money on the other side. But if for some reason demand falls off, if you have interruptions in that harvesting process, if more expenses come up, then it puts the farmer's margin at risk. And the biggest concern is consumption. If there is a downturn, if there is a recession, is it going to affect what people buy? Um, are they going to be less likely to go out to the restaurants, etc. Um, and agriculture is constantly trying to think six to nine months ahead. So they're looking at spring saying, well, if these input costs are still high and we're getting a reduction in demand, that's a bad combination. And if we put on top of this some sort of international issue, if the Chinese become less easy to work with, if Europe really sinks into a serious recession, all of that cuts into demand too. So the farmer has the delightful task of being able to worry about today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Um, so <laughs> it's just like there's no respite. You mentioned earlier that, you know, we, depending on how you want to define it, we may or may not be in a recession. But what do you see going forward? You know, the interest rates have come up as the Fed tries to tackle inflation. But, you know, will that really, in, in a sense, tackle it? Will it be other things? Will we come back down on the other side just as quick? Or what do you see for 2023? 
Yeah, we're starting to see some pretty encouraging numbers. Uh, one of the things that my company does, we track industrial production and we watch many of the other GDP numbers. The estimate right now is that we'll have moderate growth, very moderate growth in the third quarter, probably sink down into more negative growth in fourth quarter of this year and the first quarter of next year, depending a lot on the consumer. The consumer has $3.5 trillion in excess savings. We just don't know when they're going to spend it. If they spend it this fall, we'll kind of escape that downturn. But if they hang on to it for next year, we could be hitting it. The good news comes second, third, fourth quarter of next year. We start to see growth reappear in the second quarter, but by third and fourth, we're actually back to normal growth, 2.5 to 3% growth. So the way it's looking right now, if we get a downturn, it's going to be a relatively short and shallow one. Chris, before we wind up, tell folks how they can connect with you. And I know Armada puts out uh, uh, briefings and newsletters and so forth. How do folks connect? Yeah, you bet. If there's one thing you can say is I'm just as verbose in print as I am in public. Um, so the best way to find us is probably go to our website. It's armada.intel.com. And, or you can just send me an email, and that's chris.keel, K-U-E-H-L, at armadaci.com. Chris, I appreciate the time. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where we're always posting pictures and videos from our own farm. I always appreciate hearing from you and connecting on issues in agriculture. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.